So, so before we uh, we dive into God's word this morning, I want to give you guys an update on uh, Graham Rue. Many of you guys know already, and for those that don't know, I'll, I'll just kind of give a quick recap. Uh, Graham Rue is one of our juniors here in our youth group, and his mom is the one that does the food pretty much every Sunday there in the kitchen, Stacy Rue. And uh, his parents are just great servants here at our church. And uh, Graham's been a part of this church since he was basically born, so he's been around here for a long time. So um, last week, uh, Graham went into the hospital with a, I believe they would just call it a bleeding ulcer. I'm not sure what else they would call it, but um, basically when you're, he's bleeding internally, that's never a good situation. And so um, went to the hospital, I guess it was, uh, was that Wednesday? Is that right, Kaylin? Wednesday? And uh, so, um, so I went to go see him right when I heard that he was going in for that. And when I was in the hospital room with his parents and him, everything seemed okay, like it was going to be a treatment and then let's get him out of here next day or so. And then um, my family, we had to go to Houston for an eye appointment for my son. So we had to hit the road. And I was actually kind of left that room thinking, like, I don't like leaving this situation. I don't, this doesn't feel right. Um, but we had to go to Houston for an appointment. And then while we're in Houston, uh, we kept getting text messages, phone calls. The updates kept coming through. So the internal bleeding got worse. They did a couple of procedures on, um, I think it was uh, Wednesday initially. And then Thursday, um, we're actually coming back from Houston. And we stopped in Brenham for a, a quick pit stop. And we actually stopped to have some dinner. And I'm about to sit down to eat, and I start getting these calls and text messages coming through that are very concerning to all of us. And it was, the the messages were basically, hey, this is really going bad, blood pressure dropping, uh, internal bleeding, and we're going to have to have surgery, like major surgery. And so um, I got probably white as a ghost, and I felt sick to my stomach. I said, Courtney, we got to go. Let's let's get out of here. So we got in the car and just booked at the temple, and, uh, and I came straight to the hospital, and I came into a room. Uh, about about 50 people waiting room uh, while he's in surgery and uh, very encouraging to see the body of Christ at work and seeing them encourage the Rue family through this whole thing and uh, came out of surgery and um, the doctors were really positive on this is gonna be okay and so we actually got to see Graham be wheeled by on the um, on, on the bed after his surgery about 20 of us that were left there late uh, that night and uh, go to his room so Currently where he stands, he's in ICU, just they're watching him, got a couple of infections that we're really praying about um, and hoping that those things get cleared up. The doctors aren't like really horrified about those. It's, it's kind of a normal thing that they're expecting to have happen, but uh, just keep on praying for him and his family. And he should be up there for about a week at least uh, with the kind of surgery that he had and uh, just be praying for him and his family. And also, um, you really can't go see him yet because you can't see people in ICU so until, as long as he's in there, you can't really see him. Um, you could see the parents. You could call them and say, hey, can we bring you some food? We know you're sick of hospital food probably. Um, so uh, that's ways you can encourage them. But just continue to pray for them as I know that you will. I'm going to go ahead and pray for him right now as we, as we, uh, before we dive into the scriptures. Let's go ahead and pray. God, we just thank you for, um, uh, uh, for giving us doctors. Thank you for giving us medicine. Thank you for giving us people that are gifted and, and, and skilled in ways that we can't even fathom. We thank you for, um, for already bringing some healing. We thank you for already doing some of that. We pray that you just continue to do that, Father. And we pray that you would heal these infections and heal them quickly. We pray that um, you'd have a full recovery. We praise you for the way the body of Christ has stepped up and, and have been able to minister to their family uh, as they go through all this. Uh, pray for, um, for Brian, for Stacy, for Kaylin, for Celestine 
that you just give them encouragement as well and uh, help us to be the kind of place that we need to be for them as they go through all this, Father. We pray all this in your name. Amen. All right, guys. So um, this morning I got to lead uh, the little kids rally over at the 930 hour with small, small children. So if I break out in a, how are y'all doing today? Like, you'll understand why I do that. Um, and uh, it was funny because I told my son that I was going to be, he's a kindergartner, he's a six-year-old. I said, hey, I get to lead the rally next Sunday. And he looked at me like he was horrified. And I went, what, aren't you excited? And he goes, no. And I go, why? And he said, because what if the kids don't like you? And I'm like, you're not even in high school yet, man. What's your, what are you worried about? So it's not a sign of things to come. But um, so we've uh, been in the book of Judges, and today's our third week. And we spoke, the first week we talked about um, that old, like, 1980s or 1990s show on VH1 called Behind the Music. We talked about that. We said there was a certain pattern to that show where um, it looked like whenever you watched that show, it was about, a, like, an old band or an old musician um, that had gone through some stuff. And the show always had this very familiar pattern to it. It was always, like, you know, they, their, their career takes off, then they go into drugs, and then they go to rehab eventually, and then they have the comeback, right? It's kind of like this pattern we see in the, in that, on that show. And it, every show seemed like the same story but a different band. Um, this is kind of like Israel. It, it's like same story, different judge throughout the entire book of Judges. And so we, we see the same pattern. So here's the pattern we see with Israel throughout the book of Judges. And here's the pattern that you see. Go to my next slide. Israel sins. Then God hands them over to their enemies. Then Israel cries out because they're, you know, upset with God for handing them over. And then God sends a judge to deliver them. That's the pattern we see throughout the entire book of Judges. So turn with me to Judges chapter 3. and We'll start in verse uh, 7 today. Judges 3, verse 7. And we're going to take this in two sections here. So Judges 3, looking at verse 7, it says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God, and they served the Baals and the Asheroth. That's the Canaanite gods they're talking about. Now, this god Asheroth is interesting, because Asherah was the goddess of love and war. Now, isn't that confusing? Goddess of love and war. So, I love you, and I want to bring you chocolates. That's Asherah. I hate you, and I want to kill you. That's Asherah. This makes no sense, right? The goddess of love and war. So they seemed a little conflicted there. Now, I want you to know when it says that they forgot, this is not the way in which you and I uh, forget things. Um, it's a different kind of forgetting they're talking about. See, when, whenever you guys, um, is my wife in the room? Is she here? She's there at the back. Okay, so when uh, you get married, guys, you're going to realize this. You will suddenly have someone reminding you all the time that you forget things, okay? And so... When you're a single guy, you're like, it's, you're living life. You don't know that you forgot something, because how would you know if you for, it doesn't make any sense? So, um, but when you have a wife, an awesome gift from God um, that reminds you that you forget things sometimes, um, it's, it's a helpful reminder that you need to be, you know, grow in Christ-likeness. So, um, so she, she helpfully reminds me, points things out, like, hey, I told you, I asked you to do this, but you obviously forgot and I say, I didn't forget, I just didn't remember. And that makes no sense either, does it? Uh, so my excuses run out, but as humans, we forget things, we forget facts. This is not the kind of forgetting we're talking about when it comes to Israel. 
when it says Israel forgot their God, what it means is a spiritual kind of forgetting. All right? Put my next slide up there. Spiritual forgetting is failing to act on what you know. It's failing to act on what you know. So you might know, you might know the fact, but it's failing to act on what you know. And so if you look uh, throughout the Old Testament especially, the words forget and the word remember, those things mean something spiritual. It's not referring to the way you and I think of forgetting and remembering. In fact, Isaiah chapter 64, verse 9, the writer asks God, he says, do not remember our sins forever. And what he, what's he saying there? Is he saying that God can't remember sins? Can God forget? If God knows everything, is it possible for God to... We, we always say that little phrase when you're a kid that, you know, whenever you uh, are forgiven by God for your sin, that God forgets about your sin. Now, if God's really all-knowing, does he literally forget that you committed the sin? No. Like, if you were to ask him, hey, God, remember that sin I committed? He's like, what sin? What are you talking about? Like, that's not what it's talking about here. When it says that, um, when he's asking God to not remember their sins, what he's asking for is for God to not hold their sins against them. For God to not act upon what he knows. For God to not act upon the fact that he knows they committed sin. So when it says the people forget God, it's not as if they actually forgot the information. It's that they, they have failed to act on what they know. This is like knowing something with your, with your head but not with your heart. You've heard that expression before. And I think this is why so many uh, Christians or so-called Christians are what I would call dead spiritually because we can have all the information. We can pass the pop quiz. We know the stuff, but it hasn't impacted our lives. This is why you can meet two different people who will say to you, yes, I'm a Christian, and yes, I'm a Christian, but their lives can look completely opposite from each other, right? Because one person just gets it, and the truths have sunk down deep into their soul. The other person says, yeah, yeah, I believe that. Jesus died for us on the cross. Yeah, I believe all that. Yeah, I'm a Christian. You understand what I'm saying? Like, there's, there's two different kinds of people here, and the Israelites have become like those people who say, yeah, yeah, we believe all that stuff. Yeah, we're good. But it hasn't affected them. It hasn't impacted them. And as Christians, we are in danger of falling into that same trap throughout our, our walk with Christ. You know, when I was a kid, um, my dad had a couple of horses, and we grew up in Virginia where it's actually cold sometimes. And, and so they got eight inches of snow last week, which is awesome. I really miss that. But my dad had horses, and the horses, um, they stayed outside really the whole winter. It didn't matter how cold it was. They lived outside, and they, they, didn't, they didn't even have, like, a heated barn. It was just, like, a little stable with, no, with like, three walls and an open entrance area. And so even in the wintertime, they're stuck out there in the cold, and on his way to work each time, he would take their, their watering trough with a big stick or some rocks, and he would have to jab at the ice so they could have water throughout the day because it would freeze over. And this is kind of like how you have to be with your heart because our hearts are inclined towards freezing over. And if you're not careful, if we don't intentionally take steps to crush and break the ice, 
then we're going to freeze over. We grow, we grow cold towards God, and we grow apart from Him, and we no longer remember Him. We forget. We forget in our hearts. In fact, um, let me show you how this, this plays out in our lives when it comes to the area of forgiveness. Anybody here struggle with forgiveness? I mean, I, I know that that's a huge struggle for all of us. And have you met someone, or maybe you are this person, that um, claims Christ, says, yes, I worship Christ, I love Christ, I want to follow Christ, but that person is also an unforgiving person? And when you think about that, you're like, well, how does that, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, because if you're claiming to follow Christ, how can you say that you follow him and you've received his forgiveness when it's so hard for you to give that same forgiveness to other people? Tim Keller says this, if the forgiveness and salvation of Christ is real to you, you will live it out in your character and life. It's going to affect you. It's going to impact you. I told you the first week of, a, of this series about my uncle who was killed at the age of 19 in a car wreck. I, of course, never met him. My mom's brother, she was 16 when he died. And my grandfather, I spoke at my grandfather's funeral, and I, through tears, had to recount this story. I never, I never met my uncle, but I heard about him, how great of a man he was, man of God, even at the age of 19. He was killed by a drunk driver at the age of 19. And my grandfather and my grandmother, who were both believers, they, a few months later, had the man, the drunk driver, come over to their house with his girlfriend, have a meal with him, and tell him that they forgave him. And so I'm having to recount this story at my grandfather's funeral and tell the story of this happening when I wasn't there, of course. But, and I, I'm telling the story through tears, of course, knowing how my grandparents had been impacted by the gospel to where they wanted to extend forgiveness to the man who killed their son as a drunk driver. And the question is, why was he able to forgive that man? Here's, here's why. Because you can forgive someone who killed your son when you worship a God who had his son killed. When, when God the Father has his own son killed and you worship that God and, and he's forgiven even those that killed him, when you worship a God like that and it impacts your soul and your being and everything about you, this is how you're able to forgive someone who has killed your son. There's no other way around it. In fact, my, my aunt, who's an agnostic in the same family, um, atheist, agnostic, whatever word you want to use. She still is to this day. She, my, mom will say, my, my mom will say this. She says, you know, your aunt um, cannot still fathom how it was that her parents were able to forgive that man. Here we are years and years later, and she can't fathom how they could do that. And I would say, well, she's correct because it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense unless Christ, Christ enters the equation. You see, there are some people, guys, listen, there are some people who just get it. Like the gospel affects them. It impacts them. This is what it means to remember and to not forget uh, the God that we worship. Look at verse 8. It says, therefore, so the people turn away from God. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of, I'm going to butcher this, Cushion, Rishathan, whatever. What is it, Kim? How do you pronounce that? 
Yeah, that sounds better. Uh, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served him. There you go. Eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, the spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave, you guys can say it, whatever, king of uh, Mesopotamia into his hand. And his hand prevailed over, fill in the blank, CR, we'll call it CR. So the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Now, so the people rebel against God. God raises up a pagan nation to punish them. The people cry out to God. God raises up a judge to deliver them. Then there's peace. So until it happens all over again. So go ahead and do your first three questions at your tables. Okay, so now we're going to read what I think is one of the most epic stories in the entire Bible. So I want you to fasten your seatbelts because we're going to go through this very quickly, but I want you to get everything we're going to talk about here. So we're now going to see a story that's very similar in the pattern that we just saw, but it's a much more exciting, detailed, almost overly detailed story in the book of Judges. So skip down to Judges chapter 3, verse 15. And as a quick summary, so the same thing happens again to the Israelites. They go right back into idolatry and forgetting about God, turning their back on him. So God raises up another pagan nation, this time a Moabite king named Eglon. Now look at verse 15. So Eglon is raised up. And it says in verse 15, it says, Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer. You're seeing the same pattern again. Ehud, son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. So it's saying that Ehud was a left-handed. Any left-handers in here? Raise your hand. Oh, all the brilliant people in the room. That's what it is. Yeah, I see how it is. It is true. They're smarter than you, all, all you right-handers like myself. So um, so why does the Bible tell us, why does it matter that he's a left-handed man? We'll come back to this a little bit later on. Some think that left-handed means crippled, like he was actually crippled on his right hand and that he had to use his left hand in order to fight. So we'll come back to this idea a little bit later on. The people of Israel sent a tribute. Now what is a tribute? Tribute is like mafia protection money. All right, that's what it is. So this guy Eglon, he's in charge because he's, he's dominating the Israelites. And so in order for them to be protected, they've got to give him like an annual fee, like the mafia. So um, he charges this fee. And so someone from Israel comes to him every year to give this money to him. And it says in verse 16, And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges. This is getting really good. So he makes a sword. So Ehud's going to be the deliverer of the money. He makes for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length. A cubit is from your elbow to your fingertips, approximately. And he, bi- he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. So before Ehud goes into the king, 
he gets shady and he hides a knife. And uh, look at the next uh, verse here. We're still in verse 17. It says, now Eglon was a very fat man. Thank you for that detail, Bible. Verse 18, and when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away, listen, he sent away the people who carried the tribute, but he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king, a very pointed one, I might add. Sorry, that was a joke. And he commanded, listen, he commanded silence. So the king is saying silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. Now, back then, these uh, large buildings, they had a chamber on top that, that could catch the breeze, and it was cooler up there. So there's a cool roof chamber up on the top of the roof, most likely. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat, the king, and Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. That's a good action scene, isn't it? Right? Great action scene. So after Ehud gives him the money, he sends away the entourage, he tricks the king, gets him to come close, and then stabs him. Now, I want to introduce you to the most interesting verse in the entire Bible. All right? So, in fact, this verse was put in the Bible for youth pastors. I'm convinced. So here's what the verse says. And the hilt, in fact, I wanted to give this verse its own slide, make sure it gets all the glory it needs. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade. I'm going to let that sink in, no pun intended. For he did... Oh, so that joke was funny? Ha, 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 ha. All right. For he did not pull the sword out of his belly... And the dung came out. It's in the Bible. I'm just reading Scripture. That's all I'm doing, reading Scripture. Now, I had a revelation when I was studying this. This is my new life verse. I'm going to put this verse on a T-shirt and sell it in Christian bookstores. Are you guys in? Would you, would you buy one? Coffee cups? We get a whole marketing campaign going. I will think of a cool name. I'm not sure what we'll call it. But, um, yes, it, it could be, this could be a moneymaker. In fact, if any of you want to get creative and print me a shirt with this verse on it, I will wear it. All right? Just the verse just by itself. It's just scripture. It's just scripture. Now, I want to know, um, anybody have the NIV version of this verse? NIV? What does it say at the, what's the last phrase? What's the last phrase say? What does it say? No, no, like the very last, the very last phrase, not, not that verse, the previous verse. The very last phrase, what does it say? His intestines or whatever? See, okay, see the ESV, that's why it's better because it's PG-13. NIV is like something else, I'm not sure what that is. So here's, listen. So here's what happens next. Watch. Look at verse 23. It says, Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. Yeah, because he's a ninja, right? This guy's like 
quick work, lock the doors, walk away like nothing happened, right? And uh, so then here's what happens. This, this gets even better. This is even a better part of the passage, I think. So verse 24. Now, when he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. I guess there was a bathroom or whatever they call it back then in the cool chamber. And it says, and they waited until they were embarrassed. Now, so they're outside the door because, you know, the dung has come out, right? And so they're outside the door, and they're um, wondering, okay, what's he doing in there still? And, um, and they think he's got a case of what I call in my family the bodica chachas. And so that's what we call it, yes. I knew my wife would laugh just like that. That's her Ricky Ricardo laugh right there. And, uh, and so they wait till they're embarrassed. So you can imagine they're outside, and they smell something coming from the area. And so uh, it says they're embarrassed. Because you and I have been there where you walk into the restroom, and someone's in there, and you're with your friend. You're like, a tear starts coming down your face because your eyes are burning, right? So they're really embarrassed about the situation. So then they decide, it says, look, it says, but when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and they opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. All right? Look at verse 26. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah, where he, when he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. Yes, he was their leader after all of that, right? Verse 28, and he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. So we see a similar pattern we saw in the first story. This story was just a lot more interesting. Right? So normally you've got to kill a bunch of soldiers to get to the king, but this guy does it in reverse. He kills the king first and then takes out almost their entire army. So I want to ask you a really quick question. What in the world is this story all about? This is a very confusing, very, very confusing story. So I want to go back to that little detail I mentioned before, that he was a left-handed man. Some scholars think that he was not just left-handed like you and I might be, but he was actually crippled on his right hand, and therefore he had to fight with his left hand. If you're a right-handed person, how important is the right hand? In battle, it's everything, especially in that time when they used swords, and that's pretty much it. And so if a man couldn't use his right hand, he was useless in battle. In fact, I would say that this might be why he was the man that was allowed to come and bring the money to the king because they thought, oh, he's not dangerous. He can't hurt us. He's crippled. He's a crippled guy. He can't really hurt us. And so that might be why he was the one who got to come in and see the king and why the king did not expect what he had for him. No one thought he was a threat. So here's what happens. Listen very carefully. Here's what God does. He uses an unexpected man in an unexpected way 
to accomplish his purposes. This is what God does. And whenever we look through the Bible, we see this pattern in play. We, we learn to expect the unexpected. God never uses who you think he's going to use to accomplish his purpose. We, we even see this pattern. We say that God often uses our weaknesses to show his strength. God often uses our weaknesses to show off his strength. Because think about this. How was this man able to get in with the king? It was because of his weaknesses that God was able to use him and use him mightily in this situation. Because whenever you and I see a disadvantage, God sees an advantage sometimes, doesn't he? Think about this. God uses weakness to gain the victory in this story. It's a crazy story. It's an insane story. Why is it in the Bible? Why is God telling us this story? I think he's telling us because he wants you to see that we can expect the unexpected with many of the characters God utilizes throughout Scripture. In fact, it sounds like our story, doesn't it? It sounds like me and you. It sounds like the way God uses many of us, and you've seen him do that in your own life. In fact, when I was in high school, I was the, I was the kid who, I was not an upfront, give me the microphone kind of person when I was a, when I was a kid in the youth group. I was like the last person that wanted that role. In fact, my youth pastor one time said, you're going to give a testimony at this event. And I was like, no, I don't want to do that. And I, I mean, I, I've sweated over this thing for a week. I was terrified. I hated hearing myself through a microphone. Some of you guys are like, I wish that was still true. I wish that was still true. But, you know, um, that was me. That was me. But here's what God did through that. God, God has me weak. And I still feel that way. I mean, the little kids this morning, I was nervous over there. Nervous talking to those little kids over there this morning. Thinking they're going to throw fruit at me or something. And so I had a fear of speaking when I was younger. And here's what God does, though. Listen, he uses the fear that you and I have, our weakness, to keep us dependent upon him. Because if you don't have that weakness, if you don't have that, are you going to be dependent upon him? No, you're not. You're going to think, yeah, I got this. I'm good. I got this. And as we approach impact coming up, for many of you, this is how God utilizes you. You, you. you come into impact and you think to yourself, there's no way I'm getting up in front of little kids and sharing the gospel. No way it's going to happen. And then you meet Mrs. Ronslaben. And she trains you and makes you understand that, yes, we want you weak. We want you to feel inadequate. We want you to feel dependent upon God. And this is how God's going to work. We should learn to always expect the unexpected. This is how God shows his strength. In fact, this doesn't just sound like our story. This sounds like the story of Jesus, doesn't it? In Isaiah 53, verses 2, 2 and 3, it says, this is talking about Jesus. This is prophecy about Jesus. It said, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by, man, by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So God sends Jesus in weakness, but God uses that weakness to gain victory. Tim Keller says that Jesus delivered his people not through great triumph, but through crushing defeat. So when you hear this crazy story in the Old Testament, 
What's the story about? It points to Jesus. It points to Jesus, the ultimate deliverer who was made himself weak, made himself weakness, so that the strength of the Godhead could shine through and save us from our sin. That's what the story is really all about. And so um, these stories have patterns. The people rebel. God hands them over. They cry out, and he saves them. And the question I want to ask you this morning is, where do you find yourself in that pattern right now? Are you someone who is in the middle of that rebellion phase like the Israelites were? Are you someone who right now God is handing you over to your sin, like it talks about in Romans chapter 1 and 2? That God's handing you over right now. You're feeling the weight of God's judgment upon you because of the sin you're choosing in your life. Are you someone who is currently crying out to him in repentance and confession to him? Because when you make that cry, he always saves. He always saves. Go ahead and finish with your last few questions at your tables.